gonna sing a song of freedom, sing Sweet Honey in the Rock and James Horner. We here at Solutions to Violence and our guest today, Kentucky State Legislature Pam Stevenson, believe freedom for all is a good idea. But for us, freedom has to do with fairness, equity, and solving conflict without violence. Welcome to Solutions to Violence. You are listening to Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. We are delighted you can join us here again as we talk to today's guest, Louisville native, Kentucky State Representative Pam Stevenson. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan and our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. We are your host for Solutions of Balance, a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio, following as part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can do so by emailing us at solutionsofvows18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Pam Stevenson, our guest today, was born in Louisville, Kentucky. Stevenson graduated from the J.B. Brown School. She served in the U.S. Air Force for 27 years and reached the rank of colonel. Pam Stevenson earned a GD Doctorate of Jurisprudence from Indiana University. Her career experience includes working as an adjunct professor with the University of Louisville Brandeis School of Law and Air Force JAG School. As a professional leadership consultant and founder of their nonprofit law firm, so welcome to Solution to Balance, Legislature Pam Stevenson. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be with you guys because I love the work that you do. So thank you. Well, we appreciate that. So let's get started. We have a lot, lot to cover here. So State Legislature Pam Stevenson, you represent Political District 43. The overview map of District 43 illustrates that it begins in Louisville's West End, Shawnee, Chickasaw Park, but reaches through downtown Louisville, Indian Hills, St. Matthews, and Beecherwood Village. So your district covers working class neighborhoods as well as some of the most affluent neighborhoods in all of Jefferson County. How do you advocate for legislation that meets the needs of such a diverse population? Seems people who live in Indian Hills have a much different needs than those who live in Shawna Park. Well, you know, in America, we call ourselves the great melting pot, that you can come from anywhere, be about anything, and we can live together. So my district is a demonstration of that. What I've discovered is people want the same things. They want their families to thrive. They want their children to do better than they do. And they want to have a life that matters. So while some of the basic issues could be different, a lot of them are the same. And how we get to them is what really matters. Communication, talking, and identifying the issue exactly as it is. And not all the stuff we tend to add. I've had really good success in listening to what people want and making sure everyone understands the other side and then forging a solution from that shared listening. Okay, so Kentucky legislatures dominated by Republicans were in charge of redrawing political district boundaries, supposedly based on 2020 U.S. Census data. However, based on extensive studies provided by the League of Women Voters, many of the political districts were redrawn. In the words of League of Women Voters President Fran Wagner, based on, quote, sophisticated computer models that have enabled legislatures to slice and dice voters even more precisely in the districts that allow them to choose their voters rather than voters choosing their elected officials, end quote. So first, wasn't there a lawsuit filed by Democrats and others in an attempt to declare the new district boundaries illegal. There was talk of moving the primary elections up to August, but 
here we are now, May 17th, that's when that's when voting occurs. Yeah, it the the whole the whole premise of the redistricting, the biggest problem was there was not inclusion. The Republicans behind closed doors developed their maps the way they wanted to develop them. And in fact, they chose their voters. That's not how our democracy works. And in fact, the only reason our democracy works is that everybody gets one vote. We have three bodies that are independent and the legislative, the judiciary, and the executive branch and full of checks and balances. And we have freedom, all the freedoms in the first 10 amendments, including freedom of the press. And when you start to jeopardize everyone's right to vote by choosing your voters, that becomes a problem. The smarter thing to do would be to let an independent, non-political entity, a commission, resolve any redistricting that needs to happen as a result of the census, instead of allowing the census to be used as a political ploy. Now, I'll tell you uh, three examples. In West Louisville, there are 100 seats in the state of Kentucky. And in West Louisville, there were three, have been three for a long time. In this redistricting, they took away one and moved it out east, which diminishes the power of the Black vote in the state of Kentucky. So now we have two seats that we could reliably count on. The other thing they did was to pit Democratic women against one another. And in doing that redistricting and pitting them against one another, you automatically cut the number of women in the legislature down to half. That's a problem because there were not that many of us to start with. So if we had followed an above board in the light process, the public would have been able to have input into the maps that were being drawn. If it was a process that saw the light of day, the legislators would have had the Democratic legislators would have had an opportunity to give our input. But we didn't see the maps until the public saw the maps, which was like five days or so before they were going to vote on the maps. Now, here's the problem with that. When I tell you that these maps have a racial impact and you vote them in anyway, that's a problem. When I tell you it minimizes the power of the pe people of color and you vote them in anyway, that's a problem. And so the question we as citizens should be asking is what happened to the process such that it was taken over by one party to promote that party? And that's what happened with the redistricting. Yes, we did file a lawsuit and the judge decided he will hear it sometime later, but it will not affect this cycle. So we must run under the new maps this time. And then this summer, the judge will hear the case. Here's the other thing we can't see, but is very prevalent. Everywhere I go, people are confused. Like, what district am I in? Who's in my district? Where do I vote? Whenever you put doubt in the minds of voters, you're jeopardizing and weakening our democratic system. People need to know that their vote counts, where to go to vote, and that the system is not rigged one way or the other. And when you start messing with their emotions such that they ask simple questions like, where do I vote? Who's running? Why did they change it? What district am I in? We start to eat away, erode away at the foundation of our democracy. Okay. The gerrymandering conducted by Kentucky House and State Senate Republicans would have placed Annika Scott, who currently represents 41, 
in your district at Attica Scott not decided to run for the U.S. House of Representatives, the redistricting maneuver would have placed two incumbent Democrats, you and Attica Scott, in District 43, your district. Did the Republicans combine 41 and 43 for the purpose of complying with the U.S. Census data, or was there a political intent here? I always think there's a political intent when you don't invite everybody to the table. Why didn't you ask us about this before you published the maps? Why didn't you invite us to the table and give our two cents about what should happen? You didn't, they didn't do that. They published the maps in public and that's the first time we saw the maps. And then when we pointed out that set District 41 was moved out east and therefore Representative Scott had already chosen to run for another office. So that was, didn't hurt her as much as she had already declared. And now she's in District 42, which is Rep. Heron's district. Now, all of this we could have discussed if we had been part of the process. The first thing you can do when you want to look to see if you're being fair, consistent with the Constitution, consistent with democracy is, is everybody at the table that needs to be at the table to choose what works for democracy? And if the only people at the table are people that think like you, then consider that it's really not forwarding what we want are making us march towards the promise of America. So uh, Representative Scott is running for Congressman Yarmouth's position and will not be a state rep next year. She currently lives in District 42, where uh, Rep. Heron is the state legislator. So the Kentucky lawmakers also combined District 34 and 31. The Democrat Mary Lou Marzon represents Louisville House District 34, and Democrat Jose Raymond represents House 31. Because those two districts were combined, pitting the incumbent Democrats against each other, longtime House Representative Mary Lou Marzon has decided to drop out of the race. Some claim the Republicans are going after Democrats who are women. However, House Speaker David Osborne stated, quote, the consolidation of the districts was due to shifts in populations and keeping communities as intact as possible, end quote. Your thoughts here? The League of Women Voters and other organizations have done other maps that did not do what this map did. It is statistically impossible to, if you do it in a way that's fair, unbiased, to pit every woman against another woman. Statistically impossible. And if it were the only way to do it, these other organizations would not have had the opportunity to draw maps that were fair. We drew a map that was fair that did not pit all people against, all the women against each other. And these are some of our most outspoken advocates for their communities. But here's the Republican defense here, state legislature, Pam Stevenson, Kentucky Republican House Districts 93 and 97, as well as Republican House Districts 4 and 12 were also combined. Combining those districts also eliminated two Republican female incumbents. Was there a different intent here? It's still female. At the end of the day, it's still female. If you look at what's happening in the Republican primary today, they are going at each other. And so it's still a female issue where the females have been targeted, whether you're Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter. So I would say the comments are still applicable. We could have drawn a map that was fair and included all the changes in the census if we had been given the opportunity. Okay, because Attica Scott's decision to run for U.S. House of Representatives and the Republican redistricting, you no longer have to worry about opposing Attica Scott. However, 
a Jefferson County public school teacher, Robert Bell, has decided to oppose you in the Democratic primary. What's the political and philosophical difference between you and Robert Bell? Why should you be the one to represent District 43 in the Kentucky State Legislature? I have 27 years of leadership experience. I've worked in 11 countries. I've negotiated and, com and built communities in those countries. I have done the work. In fact, you could say, I'm not talking about doing the work. I'm not theorizing about doing the work. I'm doing the work. I'm playing to win. I'm in the game and it had great success. I am a true Democrat. And what I stand for is all people thriving, all families thriving. I am not a Democrat socialist. I am a Democrat that looks out for the people that work, working families. And I've done the work to make sure that they are taken care of. Okay, fair enough. So Representative Stevenson, you have been very passionate on the floor of the House about a number of issues and proposed legislation. What are your most passionate issues and why? I want to move Kentucky from the bottom of so many lists to the top, or at least near the middle. When having traveled all around the world and all around this country, I'm pretty clear that no one else has the solutions to the problems that we're facing. Because if they did, they would sell them to us. But what we have in Kentucky are people with a heart, people that want things to be better. And we can come up with solutions if we work together that will move Kentucky from the bottom to the top. Like right now, we're, we're near the top in child abuse. In child abuse, we are near the top when it comes to maternal deaths. We're near the top when it comes to the way we take care of our children and, and um, maternal health care. We don't provide for families and children the way we could if we focus on families and children. So my top three priorities are that families thrive. Families need the basics, food, shelter, healthcare, and education. Basics, that's non-negotiable. Families, when they families thrive, communities thrive. We've got to give families the opportunity to make sure they have generational wealth, a home that they can pass on to their, their children, and that they have economic opportunity with jobs, they have living wages. So that's the model. Let's focus on the family, every family thriving. Number two, there are a lot of advocates in Frankfurt for a lot of different issues, but the ones I don't hear so much are advocates for the disabled and for the elderly. I'm passionate about every life being lived fully, every life being lived fully. And that means if you have some disability, that means if you're older, that means if you have whatever life you have left to live, that we make it the best life, that we use our resources to make sure that the, the people that have disabilities can go to doctors, have transportation, have homes that they can get wheelchairs through, that the elderly have food, that they live a life where they could honestly say, the rest of my life is the best of my life. And we're not doing that. Sometimes in this country, what we do is when a person gets a certain age, we toss them to the side and we just look at them like, why don't you go ahead and let me take over because I'm younger. I don't believe that. We have to change the conversation about the elderly in this, this community and about the disabled. And we can do it. 
one of the things I'm proud of is working on the a committee where we increase the Michelle P waivers, which is more money for people who are totally incapacitated because of a disability. More money so their families can live a life and they can live a life. The other example that makes this dear to my heart is when TARP 3 went on strike and left all types of disabled people stranded. How do you explain to a child in a wheelchair why they are still in the same place three hours later? How do you explain to families who don't have a van that they have to find a way to get their child from where the child is back home? We don't do enough for the disabled nor the elderly. I have this vision that if we're going to have homes for the elderly to live in, that they'd be these fancy homes where you have your little apartment, you have a cafeteria, you have movies, there are activities. You get to say how you're going to spend the rest of your life and you get to live the rest of your life and not exist the rest of your life. That's the, the, the uh, second thing I'm passionate about. And finally, I'm always looking for ways to unify this commonwealth. How can we work together so that we can do what's best for all Kentuckians? Sometimes people like to say that if there's a rural-urban divide, and yet when I talk to people out in rural Kentucky, they have the same concerns as people in urban Kentucky. They want their children to do well. They want hospitals in the rural areas. They want portable water. We need to find a way to come together, unite, and move in the same direction. Now notice, I didn't say agree. I've been married 40 years and I don't agree with everything he says. I like to think he agrees with everything I say, but I know. But what we can do is work on the things that we agree on and come up with solutions. And the hard ones, we just have to let simmer. But, let, but what we do right now is we put the hard ones in front, which stops us from working on the easier projects. Those are the three things that I intend to focus on. And there's a lot of different uh, bills that I've co-sponsored, a lot of different projects that I'm working on, and I'm on a lot of different committees. But it's inside the context of thriving families, serving the disabled and the elderly, and unifying the Commonwealth. So, Pam Stevenson, you mentioned the importance of education. You opposed SB1, the bill that took the authority out of public schools site-based decision-making councils and place that power in the hands of superintendents. SB1 also impedes the teaching of Native American, African-American history, as well as the teaching of the history of the LBGDQ and women's rights movement. SB1 dictates to public and parochial teachers what they can and cannot teach in their classroom. Why did you oppose SB1? And does the state now have the authority to revoke teacher certification find school districts, or implement other punitive measures against teachers found in violation of the law, will there be a legal challenge to the law, SB1? One of the primary rules that we talk about in the legislature is local control, that every area knows its area, knows its people, and knows its issues. So we, at the state level, should not interfere with local control, except when we do interfere with local control, which this past session was a lot. I disagree with this bill because it's the beginning of turning our children into children and citizens who cannot think. 
why are you trying to erase history by not permitting history? Who made us teachers? People go to school to learn how to be teachers. They know how to control their classroom. They know how to cause discussion. How can we in Frankfurt say, talk about this, this, and this, and nothing else? It is the beginning to, to demonize people that are LBGQ, Native American, people of color, African-Americans, when you try to erase their history. And that's all this is. Let's not talk about the things we did. Let's not own up to it. And more than that, let's make sure they don't talk about it either. How do you think a child feels when you walk into a classroom and they're talking about everybody else but them? It diminishes who they are as a person, that their history is not being taught in school. And there's no reason not to talk about that which already has happened. And as far as whether there be a legal challenge to the law, I don't know. Okay. So SB 50 and House Bill 9 has been signed into law. Those bills will allow state funds to be used to fund charter schools. SB 50 has updated the definition of, quote, eligible student, end quote, to increase the limit of not more than 200% of the amount of household income eligible for free and reduced lunch, or about $122,000 per household of up to four people for the purpose of funding student charter school scholarships. So. $122,000 per household includes about 80%, about 80% of the Kentucky population as documented by the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy. You opposed HB9 and SB50. Why? Aren't African, some African-Americans advocating for charter schools? Yeah. And here is the thing. It might not be a well-kept secret, but not all African-Americans think alike. People have their own opinions about different things. I oppose this bill because it purports to do what public schools can do at the expense of public schools. If you take that same money and fund, for example, JCPS schools, you will get a different result. Why not hire more teachers, reduce the classroom size to 15, give students what they need like internet, MacBooks, you would get the same results that you would get in these so-called charter schools. It is another way to segregate and get people out of the public school system because these schools are out of, the companies that run the charter schools are primarily out-of-state companies. So Kentucky money goes out of state. They don't have to take the disabled. They don't have to take the troubled child. They get to choose their students and they only would choose the best if you will also what they don't face is there's studies out there to show that charter schools that 40 percent of all charter schools fail in 10 years 40 percent so why not take that same money and put it in the so that children can get what they need now in the public schools. Why not fund pre-K, universal pre-K? Why not fund higher teacher salaries? We didn't give teachers a salary this year. We gave some other people salaries like the legislators, but not teachers. Why not fund teachers so we can get an influx of teachers to the state of Kentucky? Put the money in the public school systems and let the experts in education run it and stop telling people that are experienced and have well thought out plans, what to do and how to do it without reviewing their plans. Okay, 
So Pam Stevenson, you are an attorney as well as a legislature here. The cost of law resulting from SB 50 proposed for funding charter schools will use state funding and some of the vouchers will be used to fund tuition in Catholic schools and schools connected to religious institutions. Some believe the charter school funding law is unconstitutional. Will there be a lawsuit filed in the Kentucky state courts for the purpose of declaring the charter school funding unconstitutional? If there is a law filed, will Kentucky Supreme Court declare the charter school funding unconstitutional? What's your thoughts here? Well, one of the things about the lawsuit is there are so many bad laws passed this session that we could actually file a lawsuit on almost all of them. And yet we don't have the bandwidth to file a lawsuit for every bad law because we trust legislators to look out into Kentucky and do what's best for Kentucky families. And that didn't happen. That did not happen. When we look at because the on the floor, a lot of time people invoke God in the Bible and we talk about what are we doing for the least of these? That didn't happen this session. And so we can't, why well, I don't know if we can say we can't. It will be difficult to file a lawsuit for every bad law that was passed this session. And so someone's going to have to put the cost of the lawsuit. If you know. Notice they filed a bill saying that you can't sue the legislator on a bill they passed unless you use private funds. It has a chilling effect that you would propose laws that could be unconstitutional and then take away the funding for a state government to sue in court. So I, there is a clear separation of church and state. And it's going to depend on how the advocates for this frame the question and make it clear how public monies are going to religious institutions and there's nothing in the bill to stop that. So let's change directions here. HB 321, now passed into law, is a bill that matched private investor money with state money. It is designed to help startup businesses owned by African-Americans in Louisville's West End. It will provide incremental revenue tax incentives to West End Opportunity Partnership and income tax credit for certain residents. But this bill, the TIF bill, has become controversial. Some, including your Democratic opponent, Robert Bell, believe much of the TIF funding will end up in the hands of out-of-state entrepreneurs as opposed to benefiting African-Americans living in Louisville's West End. What's your opinion? Well, first of all, I've been born and raised here. My mom had 15 brothers and sisters. My dad has three. And I have hundreds of cousins and families that live in West Louisville. So what people are saying is that somehow I would purposely align with someone that would hurt those and also hurt the people I serve. It's just ludicrous. Second of all, I always talk to people. When I talk to people, I always ask, have you read the legislation? I have. I know what it says. I know what it does. What it does is it gives the residents of West Louisville what they've been asking for for years, which is a board to give them power to decide what happens in West Louisville. Seed money to use to build programming for West Louisville. They got both of those in that bill. The board is made up of one person from each of the nine neighborhoods and another person from each of the nine neighborhoods advises. It also is made up of institutions like the Urban League, NAACP, University of Louisville, people that are already working in West Louisville to bring out the best of West Louisville 
to sit on this board and help the residents decide what they want, what's needed, how do we get more houses, people into homes, and how do we build businesses? Right now, I live in West Louisville, and if I want anything almost besides fast food, I have to leave West Louisville, either go to Indiana or go out east. If I want to sit down restaurant, if I want to shop at a mall, if I want to go shopping at a Target, anything like that, I must leave West Louisville. It is not, it does not have the quality of life that people that don't have transportation and people that do have transportation have to leave their, their community to shop for things. So the question is, if you don't like this particular tip, which is different than any other tip, in fact, we have national people coming in to say, to watch the tip, because it's something that is unique. What the tip does is it just identifies the nine areas, the nine neighborhoods. They said, this is the area. If you own a house in this area as of January, 2021, your taxes, your property taxes will be frozen for 20 years. In addition, if something should happen to you and you're passing your house on to your heirs, they get the benefit of any remaining time. And then finally, you get the say in who comes into West Louisville and what they provide. Now, is it the, it's not going to resolve every issue. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we going to do? Something different has to happen in order that the people that live in West Louisville can stay in West Louisville and benefit from living in the community that most of them are raised in. You can't just let stuff happen and then complain. You have to be proactive, try something different, and make sure that everybody understands going on and participate, participate in the partnership. Now, here's where we are with the partnership. The board is fully formed. It is made up of neighborhood residents and those organizations. They have not taken any action. They have not decided anything. What they are doing is taking information from the residents so they can prioritize what is needed. Once they get it prioritized, then they'll start coming up with programs, leveraging the programs that are already here to come up with something that's going to be useful. Before, even if we never had a tip, if we never had a partnership, if we never had the legislation, when I got here, uh, returned home from the military in 2011, I went down to the commissioner's sale of vacant and abandoned properties. There were 5,000, over 5,000 vacant and abandoned properties in West Louisville. And when I went to the commission sale, the people that were in there buying them did not live in West Louisville. So we had to think, how do we get people in West Louisville to own property in West Louisville? How can we be creative? What can we do so that as prices go down and investors come in, that people in West Louisville can stay put? And that's the purpose of this legislation, to give people a say in what happens in their community and some money, $30 million, to get started. I'm not sure why that's a bad thing. I'm not sure why people are saying developers are going to come in and take the money. The only way that would happen is if you give it to them, you control the board. So if you vote to give developers money, then you voted to give developers money. People oftentimes talk about, well, it didn't work in Chicago. It didn't work in LA. It didn't work here. Well, what about we make it work here? 
What about we look at what's happening right here, right now? What about we try to move forward in a positive way so that we can create a community that's thriving instead of always saying what won't work and not having any solutions to say what will work? I've not had one answer from anybody when I say, okay, if you don't want to do that, what do you want to do? Cricket, cricket, cricket. No response. So let's start being a part of the solution and make sure that West Louisville, if it were, is thriving. If it were a, a city, it would be the fourth largest city in the state of Kentucky. That's a lot of power. And this power is diminished when we don't work together. Fair enough. Well, let's talk about employment. An article composed by Eric Leverett entitled, quote, the American economy isn't getting any less racist, end quote, and published in the Intelligentsia in 2017, cites research conducted by Northwestern University, Harvard, and the Institute for Social Research in Norway. The research cites 24 studies that represent more than 54,000 applicants. Applications submitted for more than 25,000 job openings. The studies document the fact that white job applicants receive, on average, 36% more callbacks from hiring managers than do equally qualified African Americans. The extensive research documented that employers are still discriminating against African-American job applicants. In Levitt's words, quote, like it's 1989, end quote. The Kentucky Human Rights Commission investigates an employer if an applicant of color feels he or she has been discriminated against. But employer discrimination is hard to prove, and many applicants do not know their rights as supported by the Kentucky Human Rights Commission. Is there anything state government can do to inform African-American job applicants of their rights? Does the government need to strengthen the law or provide increased punitive responses for corporations found in violation of the Kentucky Human Rights Commission? There are a lot of actions that could be taken, and there are a lot of good ideas here in Louisville, Kentucky, about how to handle this. The one thing, for example, ban the box on the applications where it talks about if you've ever been in prison, uh, questions like that. It's called ban the box so that the question won't be answered because invariably, if you answer it honestly, you're not going to get a call back. And then if you don't answer it honestly and they found out later, they fired you. So ban the box is one of the things that we're doing. The other is allowing people who have served their sentence to regain their voting rights. And we have put two bills forward and they've not passed yet, but it will allow people after, the last bill was after five years to allow them, they completed everything. Here's a second chance. Here's your right to vote. Now I say that because most of the things that harm African-Americans are embedded in the system. And we don't, you can't see them because we've lived with them for so long that they have to be dug up and looked at with fresh new eyes. Most people living today inherited systems that were built with discrimination from the 60s. They didn't build them, but now they're a part of the fabric of the organizations, part of the fabric of the government. We have to dig those up, do the thinking, and come up with other solutions and listen to people when they say this happened to me. They're, right now, people are just, they don't feel like they've been listened to when they say this happened to me and this is why. We can do a better job of that. And that could include giving 
more uh, power or access to the Kentucky Human Rights Commission. What about affirmative action laws that would require quotas that corporations have to meet in order to stay in, in within the law? We have those right now. We have a lot of those right now. Like, for example, when they did the bridge pro project, a lot of the federal contracts requires a certain amount of this, a certain amount of that, women, blacks, people of color. And we don't have success in measuring the success of that. So when we had the bridge project, the new bridge was built, there was some federal requirements that a certain number of the companies hired be a certain mix. And I'm not sure that happened. I'm not sure that happened at all. We would have to ask the experts. But I know those bills are on the books in many instances, and they're not necessarily followed. So we have to think differently, become more creative. And in fact, that's why we have to talk to people to find out how is this showing up now so we can combat that. Just like we don't have signs on the wall that say for colors only. We we've taken those signs down from the 50s, but it's gone underground. How did it go underground? And what do we look for now since we can't see the signs? The sign would point the way to someone who felt a particular way. Now that the signs are down, what do we look for? So let's talk of Kentucky income tax. Both Republicans and Democrats, Democratic state representatives have advocated for Kentucky state income tax reform. The Republicans support decreasing corporate income tax and increasing consumption tax and sales tax. The Republicans have implemented a plan, in fact, much like that of Indiana and Tennessee, designed to decrease corporate tax and increase sales tax over a period of years. Both Tennessee and Indiana provide free community college tuition. That's one of the claims they make that that process works for them. However, University of Louisville economist Dr. Tom Lamberts states, quote, to balance our individual income tax cuts made in Kentucky 2018, the Republican legislature put sales tax on many services which have previously been exempt from sales tax. They also dropped the lower tax bracket of 4% as income taxes were switched to one rate, 5%. The highest rate was 6%, but that was dropped. Doing so helped those in higher income brackets. Getting rid of 4% hurt those in lower income brackets. We ended up with a huge surplus last year and this year, but it was mostly from the backs of working class taxpayers, end quote. In terms of Kentucky state tax reform, what's the correct strategy here? Should we increase taxes on corporations and decrease sales taxes, or do we decrease corporate taxes and increase sales taxes? What does government have to do to provide the revenue needed to keep our schools running, keep our roads safe, and fund agencies that provide necessary support for Kentucky citizens? For years, Kentucky has not had enough money to do the things they need to do, like fund public school systems, like raises for teachers, fixing potholes, infrastructure. And that was when the tax rate was at 4% up to 6%. This year, they changed it the way they changed it. And already at the first year of this proposal, we would be 90 million. Well, I want to say 90 million. I have to check that number in the hope. We won't have enough income from the revenue generated by the new tax code to pay current obligations. And it gets worse as they continue along that five-year path. So 
Why implement a plan that's been shown to be faulty to start with? We had some money that was because of COVID, we had an influx of money that we could have used it to transform Kentucky. We could have gotten broadband internet to every part of Kentucky. We could have built the infrastructure in Kentucky. We could have had universal pre-K. It's so much we could have done with that money besides give it back to the rich people that would have made life better for all people in Kentucky. I do believe to whom much is given, much is required. So if you have the ability to pay a higher income tax, which by the way, you made off of people working in your businesses at minimum wage, then you ought to be required to make sure that you pay your fair share of taxes. And some corporations are not even doing that. There have been instances where people that are making $30,000 a year pay more taxes than people making much more. That has got to stop. The second thing is anytime you move to a consumption-based tax, it impacts the people that have the least amount of income. They have to start choosing what they do and how they do it. It's an age-old story. We're required to take care of the least of these. I believe that the people that there's nothing wrong with being rich. There's nothing wrong with having money. And I think if they earned it, they should have it. But there's also a requirement that we take care of the people in the state. And it could easily be done and still have plenty of money left over. Plenty of money left over that you couldn't spend in 10 lifetimes. And still take care of the least of these. Still take care of the working families. Still make sure that families have a living wage. Still make sure that children have an education. Still make sure that people have access to health care. We can do all of that and people can still stay rich. So we know that education is one of your major concerns. Republicans claim that Kentucky State Legislature has steadily increased the funding for public education. However, a graph constructed by the Kentucky Policy Analysis Office of the State Budget Director and published on the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy website demonstrates that SEEK funding, revenue provided by state and local revenue sources for per-people expenditures, established the fact that the state's portion of SEEK's funding have steadily declined since 2008. The reason for the decline of the state's portion of SEEK funding is inflation. Between 2008 and 2020, inflation has increased 24.07%. An article published by the U.S. Inflation Calculator demonstrated that the annual inflation rate for U.S. is 8.3% for the 12 months ending in 2022. That means that inflation has increased almost 33% since 2008. The rate of inflation demonstrates that Kentucky state legislatures have drastically decreased the amount of money the state is spending on public education. Is that decrease in public revenue, school revenue, the result of a decrease in government revenue, or is there something else at play here, Pam Stevenson? I think if you adjust inflation, you will find that spending on public education has decreased. There's no other way to say it. There are studies out there that show it. The JCPS will tell you that. So even if you adjust for inflation, there's not been enough money put in public education nor pay for teachers. We can't stay competitive. Okay. So an article published by Ashley Spalding from the Kentucky Center for Economic Policy entitled Quote, Kentucky among worst states in nation for higher education cuts, harming students who already face the greatest barriers, end quote, published February 17, 2021, 
Spalding explains that the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, quote, shows Kentucky is among the 10 states with the worst cuts to state funding for higher education since before the Great Recession. Lawmakers spend 27% or $2,900, $977 less per Kentucky student in 2019 compared to 2008, far exceeding the national average decline of 11.6% or $1,033 per student. These cuts have helped drive up the cost of public colleges and universities imposing the greatest cost burden on families of colors and those with low incomes, end quote. Because of the advances in technology, because of the decline of unions, acquiring a college degree is even more important than ever. Why is Kentucky State Legislature, with its Republican supermajority, concerned about funding? Why is it Kentucky State Legislature, with its Republican majority, concerned about funding Kentucky colleges and universities at a sustainable level? I think if when, when I talk to my colleagues, many of them are concerned about it. Now, what we have to do is take that concern and listen to the experts about what is needed. We gotta think differently about the problems that we find ourselves at this juncture. The same thinking that got us to these problems will not get us away from these problems. So for example, there is a focus on Kentucky colleges and universities. There should also be a focus on making sure that, that the students that wanna be plumbers, car mechanics, and those type of technical skills, that they have the opportunity to go forth too. And that we bring back the, they used to call them shop classes when I was in high school, <laughs> but we bring back those technical skills. So children or students have a choice about what they want to do. Two year, four year, or a technical training school. And then listening to the presidents and the different educational experts, what can we do differently to fund these? We can't just keep cutting and wishing and hoping that things will get better in the future when we don't necessarily have a new source of revenue in the state. Let's change the directions again here. Lewis witnessed almost two years of demonstrations and protests as a result of the Metro Police drug warrant served on a Louisville apartment that took the life of an innocent Breonna Taylor. That no-knock drug warrant now lives in infamy. Some say, to fund the police and use those funds to improve social programs and programs that provide economic opportunity for working class citizens. What's your take on defunding the police? From the beginning of time, whenever you have people together, when Moses went through the desert, people were fighting. Well, people will always have conflict and disagreement and it has to be someone with authority to navigate those disagreements. That's just the nature of being human. What needs to happen is a different type of training. They're not military, they, they are peace officers and not military officers. And the difference is every time you approach a particular community, you don't approach it like you're in a war zone. I did a ride along with a police many, many years ago in West Louisville. I wanted to do it in my community. I did a ride along. It was, um, I was amazed at some of the things that these officers face and how they handled it. There are very good police officers. Not every police officer is bad. And there needs to be a different level of training, cultural training. I mean, I was in the car when the police officer said, look at them, don't they have jobs? And I said, hello, I'm in the car. Who's the they? Who are you talking about? It's that lack of sensitivity for the community and what the people in the community are facing that is problematic. 
Yes, I think we need to have social services. I think we need to have mental health. I think we need a whole host of wraparound services, but it's separate from the police officer. It should be available to refer people to, to get people to. But I want my police officers to be trained in how to treat people with decency and order and kindness and with structure so that we can de-escalate situations and not escalate situations, that every life matters, that you don't get to treat Black people differently than you treat people out East. Okay, let's explore this issue of safety a little further. Governor Bashir signed a partial no-knock warrant bill. Under the law that was passed, police must execute no-knock warrants between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m., and police officers are required to take additional steps to obtain warrants. Judges are required to sign legibly when approving no-knock warrants, and EMT must now be nearby during execution of a no-knock warrant. Did you support this bill? What would have made no-knock warrant bill a stronger bill? Um, I did support this bill. The eyes of America were on Kentucky to see what Kentucky was going to do to resolve the Breonna Taylor killing. And they were, going, they were looking to see what Kentucky was going to do to resolve the instrument that caused Breonna Taylor to be killed. Now, was it as strong as it could be? No, but in the legislature, we have a hundred different opinions, 138 if you include the Senate. It's a game of inches. You never ever rarely get everything you want in one bill but you get as much as you can. And in this bill, we got as much as we could get at this time. And we can improve it over time to get in more things that will make it less likely to happen, what happened to Ms. Taylor, to happen to someone else. As research conducted by the National Organization, Every Town USA demonstrates, every year the number killed and injured by guns increases. In 2021, some 44,000 US citizens died as a result of gun violence. Louisville is no exception. Every year, the number of Louisville citizens dying as a result of gun violence increases. A Curb Journal article penned by Morgan Watkins and published May 13th titled, quote, McGarvey Scott Talk Crime and Inflation, end quote, covered a form featuring Annika Scott and Morgan McGarvey. When asked about their plan for reducing crime and violence, neither candidate mentioned improved gun safety regulations. Does the National Rifle Association have such a chokehold on our political leadership that politicians are afraid to talk about gun safety regulations? What's your position here, Pam Stevenson? If you recall, I, I, I can't even give you a date, but there was a picture that was flashed across TV of people with assault rifles in the Capitol. Kentucky is a gun state. Kentucky is a Second Amendment state. And it is very, very difficult to get anything done when it talks about, when you talk about gun safety. Doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying. We must try. Just like the 16-year-old that got killed six, at 6.20 in the morning waiting on the school bus. And the last words his mom heard was, mom, they shot me and I'm dying. And she got over there as quick as she could and he was gone. We have to do something about not regulating guns, but making sure that people that have guns, that there's that safety. And there are a whole bunch of organizations that have a lot of great ideals. I've listened to a couple of them and we need to implement some of them and stop hearing they're trying to take away our guns. Nobody's trying to take away anybody's guns, but we do want our children to be safe. We do want to be able to go to a venue and not worry about somebody driving by and shooting. We must have some safety measures in place 
so that people can live their lives without fear of gunshot. And it's a very hard topic to talk about because people are not listening. Everybody's in their corner, ready to fight about their position. And we're not listening to each other to come up with how to protect and save the children. Okay, so you would support some additional gun safety regulations. Yeah. Okay. So having had some setbacks as a result of the Republican supermajority in state legislatures and some successes as well, you experienced in the past two years, what encourages you about remaining in public service and representing the people of Louisville and Franklin? One of the greatest joys I had when I was in the Air Force was living for something bigger than self, an ideal a people, a a possibility. And now that I get to do that for my state of Kentucky, that families depend on legislators to make their quality of life better than it was before. That's an honor that we've been entrusted with. We've not done so well with it. Like we stopped the state of emergency 22 days early, costed $50 million in food stamps to people who needed that food stamp. We've not done a good job on it, but I can't stop trying to serve the people of Kentucky and the people in my community because I think that's what God calls us to do is to serve humanity, to make sure that the least of these are taken care of, to make sure that we do our part, to make sure that things are better than they were when we first showed up. And if everybody did that, we would leave this community in a much better place. So I love serving people and there are a lot of good people in my district. I talk to them quite a bit. And they have hopes, dreams, and aspirations. They want so much for their life. And it's my honor and privilege to try to shape a context, a community that allows them to thrive. Okay. So, Pam Stevenson, any aspirations for maybe a higher office, state senate, like Annika Scott, U.S. representative? I only want what's best for Kentucky, whatever is best for Kentucky. And so I'm looking at, as a state rep, what, in fact, I, after Tuesday, I'll be focused on it more if I'm reelected, to what can I do as a state rep to make sure that the Democratic Party thrives and that all Kentuckians, no matter what your party, that every family thrives. I think when we get down to that, then where the families are thriving, then Kentucky automatically goes to the top of the list. And we will become a state where other states will model themselves after. So I am focused on looking at those type things right now. Okay. I uh, kind of answered this question, Representative Pam Stevenson, but what final thoughts would you leave with us today about your work, mission, and what you feel important about yourself and the people of Kentucky? We are good people with good hearts and we have what it takes to make Kentucky the best state. The only thing I want to ask is people listen with an open heart. People be kind. It's all right to be to disagree but not be disagreeable. It is all right to and, and encourage for you to live your best life but stop telling other people what to do. We must work together in order to have life in Kentucky be thriving and have people flood in here, have companies flood in here, and to make sure every life is well lived. That's the number one thing. Let's just agree on what we can agree on and make Kentucky better. Okay. So, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of time. Kentucky State Representative Pam Stevenson has been our guest today. Thank you, Representative Stevenson. It's been a pleasure to have you join us on Solutions to Violence. Yes. 
A solution to volunteers on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Our interview featuring Kentucky State Legislator Pam Stevenson airs again May 17th and 18th. Listen live stream. Visit us at Forward Radio and click on Listen Live Now. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Pam Stevenson will be placed in the WFMP archives Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. To visit our archives, go to, go to Forward Radio website at forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, then the Solutions to Violence program that features Kentucky State Representative Pam Stevenson. Please send your thoughts and suggestions to solutionstoviolence18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Anyone who is opposing Pam Stevenson in the upcoming state legislative election wishes to appear on our program, we'll be happy to put you on Solutions to Violence. Just contact us at solutionstoviolence18 at gmail.com. I'm Jim Johnson with Jamie McMillan, our technical.